So you always want to be prepared to... To set goals. To be really disruptive. Diversity is fundamental. It is just trusting those super strengths. To recover from those failures and, and learn from them. Humility looks like the softest word, but it's kind of the hardest. We ourselves are in beta mode. Life goes on. Sporting Edge, inside the mind of champions. Welcome to the Inside the Mind of Champions podcast. My name is Jeremy Snape. I'm a former England cricketer with a master's degree in sports psychology. Since retiring, I've been fortunate to work with and interview some of the world's most successful thinkers and performers. And I'm passionate about translating their habits and routines into practical strategies to help you become more successful. In each episode, I'll be dissecting a common performance challenge to help you improve your mindset, your leadership, and your team performance. To me, our mindset is the next frontier. So let's find out why. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Inside the Mind of Champions. This week I've selected an interview from our members content platform with renowned neuroscientist, Professor Vin Walsh. I've known Vin for over a decade and his work is absolutely fascinating. His title's Professor of Human Brain Research at the Institute of Cognitive Neuroscience, University College London. And he works on many aspects of perception and memory and is currently investigating lifelong learning and plasticity in the brain using behavioural brain imaging and human brain stimulation methods. He got a PhD in visual neuroscience from Manchester and then had 10 years at Oxford before joining UCL in 2002. So as part of these human brain stimulation experiments, they use electrical currents to try and stimulate different areas of the brain while people are reading, solving puzzles or drawing. And this gives his team a chance to track the patterns and see all the different interplay between the different regions of the brain. Vin's fascinated in the field of high performance and has supported a range of elite performers and teams in this field. Here's a taster of what's to come. The brain, in one sense, doesn't know the difference between an action and a thought. It's still all brain activity. The sporting brain, I would argue, is perhaps the brain that's under more pressure and has to operate more quickly um, than any other brain I can think of. Visualisation's a, a, a special case. The key thing to, to remember is there's a difference between imagery and fantasy. There have been experiments done, and some of them have been done in, in my lab, in which we've shown that adults in their 30s and 40s and 50s, when they learn a new task over days and weeks, will develop brain activity and uh, connectivity changes that start to look like the brains of experts. And we have still now the exact same primitive fear responses as we would have had 100,000 years ago. Despite being a leader in his field, Vin's got that ability to simplify these complex subjects down so that we can all access his insights. He agreed to do the interview really quickly. And in this first insight, you can hear why. Well, first thing is I, I, I love sport. Um, 
and it's not the only thing I love. I love, love music, other, other, other things, but sports people are a particular kind of model to me. And I just don't mean in the, in the natural uh, sense of being heroes when, when they win. Um, I think what they do is really underestimated and actually undervalued. Let me give me some examples. So if you think about the training that a sports person does, um, hours and hours and hours every week, highly focused for a tiny, tiny gain. And if you think about who else does that kind of massive input for a tiny output, which is, apart from anything else, fantastically disciplined, not anyone can do that. Um, I can only think of classical musicians and, and other professional musicians who would do that. So they're already in a very, very special part of the, the human population. Um, but there are other things that they do that are, that are special. Uh, one of them, for example, is they get judged every week by people who know nothing about what they do. And here, I can't actually think of any other population who goes through this. Um, we vote on politicians, that's true, but that's every five years and they can hide behind the party. Uh, there are occasional uh, personal judgments, but it's nothing like the uh, judgments across the whole population that an athlete will, will experience. Um, and the other thing that, that, stands, that makes them stand out for me is that you know, I'm, when I was 40, I was a young scientist. If you're 45, you're still a young politician. Um, if you're 35, you could be a, you know, a young businessman. But you're 35 or 40 uh, in sport with very, very few exceptions, and I wouldn't dwell on the exceptions because they are extreme exceptions. You're dead and buried. You're, that career is over, and you've got to make a complete transformation in your life when everybody else is, what can we say, cashing in on their achievements. Everybody else is consolidating what they've built up for those 20 years. Well, athletes have to cash it all in, stop, and do something else. And I think that presents specific challenges. So what I would say about athletes uh, and, and other elite performers in, in, in sport is that they, uh, they present a brain system which is specifically interesting to me. And I can talk about the changes and the challenges that their brains face. But they present everyday challenges, psychological challenges, which I don't think are respected enough, to be perfectly honest with you. Um, I think, I think what they do is as remarkable as anything else that you can think of in any other elite group, whether it be, it be in business, politics, the arts. And for some reason in our society, we seem to think that it's okay to, um, uh, to, to ridicule or to judge elite performance. So I'll give you one, one example that occurs to me at the moment. Tim Henman, you know happened to get to be the third or fourth best in the world at what he did. He was an incredible athlete, you know. Um, it's an individual gladiatorial sport. He takes full responsibility for what he does in front of crowds of, of thousands and tens of thousands of, of people. And yet, in the back pages of the British press, he was sometimes a, a figure of fun. Um, there's no other um, domain of activity in the world where, where that would happen, none. Um, you could be the thousandth best at what you do and still have a decent job in Parliament. You know, you could be the ten thousandth best at what you do and still have a decent job uh, in, in, in music. And you could be the fiftieth thousandth best at what you do and still have a decent job 
in, uh, in, in business and some aspects of science. So I would put sports people, their brains and the challenges they meet as right up there and I'm not, not ashamed to advertise it for them. Well, I'm sure all the athletes listening to this will be puffing their chest out on their bike ride or dog walk today. It's interesting to think about the dedication and fine tuning that an athlete has to develop to hone their mind and body. And that's obviously something which Vin and his team are passionate about uncovering. But before we move on, I wanted to dig into his passion a bit more and see why the sporting brain was so interesting to him. One of the things that always surprises me about people's approach to sport, by people I mean not professionals, I mean how people outside of the elite level think about sports, is they think it's something to do with the body. And, and at worst, they sometimes seem to think that it's a trade-off between the brain and the body. And actually, if you do some kind of sport, you might be a little less intelligent than somebody who doesn't do some kind of sport. That kind of nonsense does exist in people's minds. But if you really appreciate what the body does, then you have to come to understand that the body is actually the brain's biggest problem. And in order to do the things, coordinate body movement, in order to anticipate somebody else's body movement, in order to make decisions in milliseconds, you know, not decide whether to move some money today or tomorrow, to make decisions in milliseconds, and to make decisions when 15 other people on the field are trying to stop you making that decision. Um, the sporting brain, I would argue, is perhaps the brain that's under more pressure and has to operate more quickly um, than any other brain I can think of. Quicker than a businessman's brain. As a scientist, I can certainly say quicker than a scientist's brain. Um, so the, the sporting brain is, um, is a, a real model of, provides us with a model of just how the brain can operate at, at its limits. And I, I sometimes say, because it's true, that the body is the mind's greatest mystery. So this is the, this is the key thing to understand about sport, which of course elite people understand. It's a head game and the body isn't going to do anything that isn't already going on in, in the head. And that's more true than people can possibly imagine. If I give you uh, an example from something that we call uh, mirror neurons. If I smile at you, the only reason, the only reason, but one of the reasons you know that that means that I'm happy is because your brain will be actually activating the, um, the, the smile action in yourself. And without being able to do that mirroring, you understand my emotions less. And the same would be true if we were playing a game of volleyball or football or any other team sport and we were facing each other, you, my movements would be very, very important for you to program and, and, and understand before you made your movements. But the speed with which that all goes on makes your average chess player look a bit dim, frankly. How was that line? The body is the brain's biggest problem. I've never heard anything like that before. And that assumption that perhaps when I was playing my cricket career, diving around in the field, that my body was doing the work. But actually, my body couldn't have done it unless my onboard computer had already set the scene and sent the commands a fraction of a second earlier. 
So it's not just that the novice's body can't perform the skill, it's that their brain doesn't even understand where to start the command. And that's why the brain's so powerful. Vin challenges us to think about intelligence in a different way, not just the traditional firing answers back to the teacher when we're asked times tables or working out a chemical equation, but to think about our physical literacy and mastery level coordination as a kind of highly developed intelligence. I don't think this is restricted to sport either. Think of the master artist with those fine motor movements of the pencil or brush or the ballerina's perfect poise or the pianist's perfect dexterity moving so quickly to get their fingers in a blur as they play their concerto. This is deep level mastery and both physical and mental conditioning is intertwined. I'd not really thought about how the brain operates in a team context either, so no offence to any chess players listening, but the way Vin explains that personal mastery is one thing, but that ability to anticipate, move and react in sync with a dynamic group of teammates and opponents is really next level. I think we'll probably take it for granted as professional athletes as well that we're actually developing our brains as well as our body because we're training for several hours a day. Often you're doing it with overload training, which means that your coaches have reduced the reaction time or you've got less distance or bigger weights or less space than you used to. And it sort of overloads the accelerated learning experience for everybody. And when you do this day after day after day for years, you don't realize how much deep expertise you're developing. So if I think about a cricket example with the bowler who can bowl the ball at 90 miles an hour, which is about 140 k's an hour, this means that the batsman has around 0.3 seconds to see the ball, judge where it's going to land, to watch out for any swing or movement off the pitch, and then initiate and execute their shot. It's insane that all that can happen in that split second. I just found some research which I thought was quite interesting on this point by P. McLeod that said that novice players and pros, when they watched videos of bowlers bowling, could both have the same reaction speed. So visually, they could see the ball coming out of the hand and having some kind of judgment. But the novices, when it was live in a cricket context, responded much slower. So this reinforces Vin's point about the body being the brain's biggest problem because the brains of the two were both recognising the same stimulus, but only through their immersion and daily exposure to the training drills were the pros able to respond in time with their bodies. I remember on an England tour actually of Australia, I think it was 2002, facing their lightning fast quick bowler Brett Lee in Sydney. And he bowled a ball that was coming straight for my beak and I managed some kind of reflex squirm action and got hit on the glove. A blow that broke my thumb in six places. And I certainly felt like a novice in that 0.3 of a second getting hit before I was wheeled into the operating theatre to have it plated and pinned. I'd say that's the biggest thing that stood out to me at the very top level and it was the speed and pace of everything. Your reactions and decision making absolutely had to be spot on. And one of the key skills in sports psychology is visualisation. 
the practice of simulating what you might face and imagining that performance, how it might play out in front of you, almost as if you're watching a film of yourself. And certainly this is a great activity for building confidence, whether you're going out to play sport at a new stadium or you've been asked to give a speech on stage at a new venue. Visualisation is good preparation. But what I was interested in was what was going on in our brain when we do it effectively. Visualisation is a, a, a special case because it's something that's applicable to the, um, the non-elite population as well as the elite population. The key thing to, to remember is there's a difference between imagery and fantasy. So um, I might like to imagine that I could serve an ace at 130 miles an hour. I can imagine it as much as I like, it's not going to happen. Um, but if I were to imagine something closer to something I actually could do, then what will happen is that I will activate um, uh, brain patterns that are associated with that, that real action. When you imagine clenching your fist, you do actually activate many of the same brain areas that are involved in the, in the real action. That's why imagery isn't nonsense. Um, and the rest is a lot like learning in any other way without imagery. The key to learning is to do a lot of what you already can do to consolidate it a lot, a lot of the time and then to add something that's just a little bit outside your range, something that you can almost do. There's no point trying things that are utterly impossible for you to do. And the same is true of, of imagery. Imagining things that you can do is a good thing because you will consolidate those successful patterns. And then imagining how you can do something that's just a little bit more difficult is also a good thing because you will be um, activating similar patterns and activating the similar kinds of patterns to those which you would activate if you were actually trying to learn to do something that's a little bit outside of your remit. Trying to learn to do something that's a little bit outside of your remit. I love that point that there's a big difference between imagery and fantasy. And you see a lot of self-help gurus encouraging people to manifest and all your dreams will come true. And I think that falls into Vin's fantasy bracket. But what I would say is that repeatedly seeing a positive end goal or an image can be a really good way to anchor that goal that you've set yourself. And then it allows you to align your choices to that. I remember Graham Smith, the South African cricket captain, putting a picture of himself as the captain of South Africa on his fridge when he was age 12. And that allowed him to say, as he walked past the fridge every day, you know, am I doing the things that are going to lead to that end game? So I think visual representation can be great, but we actually have to do something about it. We need those habits. We need those choices. We need that repetition and practice that's going to make it a reality rather than just dreaming about it and wishing it and then it's going to arrive on our doorstep. We've all heard the theory of the growth mindset which encourages a positive attitude towards learning new skills and it's the tenacity and hard work that eventually pays off. And we've also heard some people with the belief that you can't teach old dogs new tricks. Well Vin's work in neuroplasticity gives us the ability to see those changes happening in our brain, actually developing. Um, and that definitely gives us more belief and evidence for this growth mindset. 
So when we're engaging in this focus practice, our brain is actually forming new connections. And with repetition and more practice, these become ingrained. So we can actually rely on them under pressure as instinct. They're these instinctive responses, these reflexes that just happen to the people that have put the work in. In effect, those dendrites in the brain, these connections are reaching out across the skill gap and building a bridge between what we can currently do now and the new skill. And this is hard and really energy intensive and it takes a long time. And that's why most people give up before the bridge is even built. I could see how this worked from a physical skill, for example, learning to snowboard or a funky new dance move. But at first it's mechanical and clunky. And then once those neurological pathways are in place, we can do it without even thinking it becomes that instinct. But was it the same mechanism that would be in place for our thinking? I was really interested in Vin's view. The brain, in one sense, doesn't know the difference between an action and a thought. It's still all brain activity. So thinking things also creates changes in brain structure, changes in brain connectivity, and changes in the speed of the, of, of, of the connectivity between different areas. So if you are thinking, let's say, I can't do X, I can't throw this ball, I can't, um, I can't, um, I can't lift this weight, I can't climb this wall, whatever it, it might be, by thinking that you can't do it, you're actually activating associations between your reward pathways, your decision-making pathways, um, your planning pathways and your action pathways. So I wouldn't think that when you do something you overwrite your, um, your thinking patterns. Your thinking patterns are part of what you are, you are doing and the more you think something and the more you practice something, I'm, I'm using thought and action in, in, as, as one thing in the brain here, um, the more you build up the uh, connectivity between the areas that perform these tasks. And if you, if you have a pattern of negative thoughts, you'll eventually end up with what you might consider to be a kind of a, a broadband connection between you know, negative thought and, and, and failure. But it's definitely within your power to change that. It's definitely within your power to change that. Well, that's good and bad, I suppose. Either way, the onus is on us. I used to think that that inner critic, those negative thoughts, were just an intangible puff of smoke that drifted off across the sports field or across the business room that I was in. But to hear that I was creating the central wiring of my own operating system was pretty scary. It comes with huge responsibility. How come we weren't teaching this in school? If we get trapped listening to our own negative inner voice, then we're actually laying down that broadband connection to failure on our own. Forget the environment. So our instinct tomorrow will be to get more failure and get to failure faster because of those connections from what we were thinking in the past. Our thought patterns aren't the truth. They're just habits. They've been modified like any habit, but we are what we repeatedly think. And in this explanation of the physical structures, we really start to learn why.
Well, if you're new to the show and want to learn to think like a champion, then I'd like to introduce you to the Sporting Edge Members Club, the digital platform and content library that's designed to give you inspirational strategies to boost your mindset, leadership and team performance. You'll have access to some of the leading minds across military, sport, business and academia, providing tangible tools to help you to thrive in these uncertain times. We've got leaders from some of the biggest brands in the world using and trusting this coaching resource. And you can get a month's free membership using the code PODCAST100 in the checkout at sportingedge.com forward slash membership. During times of uncertainty and pressure, your mindset will be the key to your success. Sporting Edge members have unlimited personal access to hundreds of video insights and performance strategies to accelerate their personal and professional success. This is your chance to get powerful weekly micro lessons from the world's best thinkers and performers from elite sport. You'll be able to connect with a global network of entrepreneurs, coaches and senior executives on webinars, discussion forums and events. Become a Sporting Edge member and get access to the world's best coaches on demand. For more information, visit www.sportingedge.com or email hello at sportingedge.com. So now that we know that what we think is actually creating physical pathways in our brain, we need to be more aware of whether we're building a bridge built on strengths or sand. Then it's about starting to see the trigger and having your positive story ready so we don't get into that negative spiral. So instead of me seeing a speech in my diary and saying, oh no, that's going to be scary, everyone's going to laugh at me, I can swap it for saying, okay, I'm flying to X and it's a great opportunity to help a thousand people to become more resilient. I'm way more likely to look forward to that event when I see it and flick through my diary. So that ability to reframe our thoughts and have some of these triggers and mantras and positive uh, comments ready is really important. This would have all seemed a bit pointless and wishy-washy until you realise that everything you think or do sculpts your brain in real time. So I better make the best of it that I can. It also encourages us to be patient when asked, how long does it take to form a habit? Listening to Vin, I suppose the question is, how long does it take for a new dendrite bridge to form across a previously unconnected path? This bridge building process can be accelerated and consolidated by the amount of emotion and repetition we have but also by eating the healthy diet and omega-3 fatty acids that we need from oily fish because that provides the raw material for our brain structures. So those brain foods are so important. It's also interesting to think that our brain's primed to prioritise strong negative emotions like fear, guilt, shame and loss. And we're more likely to have them stand out as powerful memories because they're good survival mechanisms for us. And that's why we need to work harder to encode our positive memories when we've been successful, when we've had great achievements, because these are the ones we're more likely that we want to recall them in high pressure situations. Now, we can see the mind body link we're starting to talk about here. It's not separate how Descartes thought it was uh, many moons ago. Um, This is all about this system of high performance with our diet, our sleep, our sleep 
our downtime, our practice, our repetition, all helping to consolidate those new neural pathways. And in turn, our physical mannerisms and habits develop and our skills as part of that. I was also thinking about the opposite scenario of this with the conditions like the phantom limb syndrome, where patients that have had their arm or leg amputated still get this sensation, a burning sensation or a movement sensation for days, weeks and months after that limb has been amputated because the brain still has that neural network to fire those sensations across, yet the limb doesn't exist in reality anymore. So it almost takes that time for those dendrites and networks to wither away through not being used. And that's when that pain and sensation will subside. So this is a very dynamic model that we're talking about in the brain. Maybe there's a role for visualization and imagery here that there's research to show that injured athletes who'd had an operation or torn a ligament or something who used visualization had a greater sense of control. They maintained a more positive mood and they saw faster recovery than those who didn't use visualization. A patient could maybe imagine the swelling starting to fall or imagine them starting to add more weight to those um, legs and walking without crutches and starting to practice again. Those visual images where maybe you're starting to think about yourself moving with symmetrical um, a walking pattern rather than a limp or a symmetrical strength after an arm's been um, operated on could actually start to help that neural pathway rebalance. Um, and it definitely would give you more sense of control and feeling like you're going to do something about it rather than being a victim and reinforcing that negative loop. So what we're relying on here is the brain's ability to adapt to new situations and the fact is that as we interact with our environment, our brain is always being shaped in real time. And the more we think and practice something, the more it becomes a habit. And this can be both a problem and a strength, as Vin now explains. There have been experiments done, and some of them have been done in, in my lab, in which we've shown that adults in their 30s and 40s and 50s, when they learn a new task over days and weeks, will develop brain activity and uh, connectivity changes that start to look like the brains of experts. And from that, I think we can say that, no, these brains are not like that from birth. They've been created like that by the work that people put in. And I think it's one of the areas of, of life that we get really very wrong. We imagine that there is some kind of characteristic of the brain that's fixed and it's just not like that. We, we really are in control of it. And, and I guess that gives us responsibility for it. I think this area of neuroplasticity is just so interesting. And Vin's research shows that novice musicians that have their brains scanned and then have several months of deliberate and focused practice then start to develop these uh, pathways of the, you know, the experts and the virtuosos, it's absolutely fascinating. So like when we lift dumbbells, our body realizes that we're calling for more strength and resource in that area. So it grows extra fibers to give us more strength. Our brains remarkably are the same. And that's why we probably feel so hungry and exhausted when we're learning new skills and new techniques in sport or dance or new languages or new processes in business. 
because our brain consumes 20% of our dietary glucose and making these new pathways, these new myelinated dendrites and synapses, which are the pipes and the junctions in our brain, if you like, they need the food and they need that energy to create those building blocks. With all this talk of, you know, futuristic scanning technology and, and neuroplasticity, I was really interested to see whether Vin thought our brain had changed much since our early ancestors or whether we were actually still running on some ancient wiring. A friend of mine, I was having a conversation once with a group of us and uh, somebody said, imagine if we lived in the wild and this person piped up, what do you mean imagine if we lived in the wild? We do live in the wild. And that struck me as a really interesting thing to say because what that person understood is that uh, really the core elements of life haven't changed for um, you know, 100,000 years since we <clears throat> left Africa. And in saying that, what I mean is that uh, our brain systems are still primed very much to detect danger. Uh, and we have still now the exact same primitive fear responses as we would have had a hundred thousand years ago or our ancestors even you know two million years ago um, it's just that those dangers have have changed so those dangers are now the threats are now a job interview uh, the threats are, are now um, a bank statement uh, the threats are now a group of drunks on the uh, on, on the street and we have these terrifically powerful um, anxiety responses towards uh, any of these dangers. Um, so I, I would say it, it's best to understand these fight or flight responses as, um, as evidence that we still live in the wild. And even if you think we don't, it's a good idea to remember that your brain does. I love that. Our brain still thinks we're in the jungle. I'm working with lots of businesses at the moment who are navigating or leading some kind of change initiative and one of the key things in my webinars and workshops is exploring this need for increased awareness of why change and uncertainty create stress and how to manage our emotions. As we heard in the recent episode 68 with Kieran Reid, the captain of the All Blacks, that ability to reframe the setbacks or those angry flashpoints on the pitch is essential. We need to preempt those situations or those conversations that are going to make us boil over and find a way to move from, as he describes it, the red head of emotion and frustration and anger to the blue head of calm in the moment, process thinking, because those responses are really important. And if we are going to be responsible, that means we're able to choose our response in those flashpoint moments. One of Vin's specialist area is the role of sleep in our performance and recovery. So I asked him to design me the perfect day from an energy management perspective. And again, his points make complete sense. Let me start with a, a kind of, a, of an example. If you think of all the days, that, all the things that we do during a, a working day or have to do, we have to eat, we have to be in certain places and, and we, have to, we have to sleep. Those are three, three core things. Um, and two of those are really already a basket case for, for most people. Unless you're already uh, an athlete who's in total control of, of your diet and, and, and supplements, 
Uh, my guess is that most people are not thinking about their, their diet optimally. It's something that we take for granted. The other thing that we take for granted is sleep. And um, let me explain what I mean by that. We all, all have to sleep for whether it be five, six, seven or eight hours uh, a night. And we all squeeze that into one part of the day. And to make sure that we get through the day in order to get to sleep, we uh, we, we rush around, we, we take coffee, and some people take other, other stimulants, for example. But we've already there created uh, something that's kind of, of unnatural. It's our, our, they're called circadian rhythms, our daily energy balances during the day. And uh, m most people would have a, a dip in the afternoon. It's nothing to do with having, a, having had a, 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 a big lunch. Um, it's just an, a natural dip in your, uh, your body's energy levels and, and need for sleep. Uh, but what we do to fit everything else into the day is to squeeze all our sleep into the end of the day. And that's quite honestly crazy. So the first thing I would say is, if you really want to solve the problem of how best to organize a day, you're gonna have to have some courage and say the first thing that I'm gonna do is perhaps not organize my day the way other people organize their day, just because that's the way everybody else does it. Now, it might not be that everybody needs a nap, uh, but it, it would benefit a great number of people if they could take control of their energy cycle during the day in, in that way. I know people throw their hands up in the air and they say, oh, that's impossible. But if you think of the number of hours a day that people throw away on other things, commuting, TV, um, uh, getting from, from, from A to B when they're already in, in the work environment, shuffling things around on their desks and not dealing with them. The time is always there. I think it's always there. I know that Vin's not only an expert in the theory of napping, but he's also an expert proponent because after driving to our Sporting Edge offices for this interview and arriving early, he came to let me know he'd arrived, but he also said, I'm going for a quick kip in the car to charge himself up for, for the interview. It was a first for me, but it makes complete sense. We snack and have three meals a day and space out that fuel. So why don't we recover in the same way? We just see sleep as the last thing we do when everything else is done. So let's imagine that we've gone to bed early, we've had a good sleep, we've woken up feeling brand new and our mental energy reserve is totally full. How best could we deploy that focus and energy to maximize our productivity and focus the next day. So if we think about how we, uh, how we organize our days or how we apportion our energy during the day, it's not hard to find things that we can do better. Um, if you think about, think about your desk, think about, about what's on there. Now, my guess is that on the average desk, there's between 15 and 20 things, and maybe four or five of them are things that have to be done now. What you're doing when you're facing yourself with all those things that have to be done now is your brain periodically switching from task A to task B to job C to job D to job E. And every time you switch from one to the other, it costs minutes of time because your brain has to get into a completely different set. It has to undo all the stuff you've been doing and then, and then get into the right set for what you want to do now. You're also losing time just by having those things there, even if you think 
you're not concentrating on, on any of them. You think you're concentrating on just the job in hand. These things in the periphery will be having an effect on what you do. So the average desk is losing you time every day. So one simple thing, and they do this, think they do it in Google, and they certainly do it in, in other big corporations, is they tell people, have one piece of paper on your desk. Have the job on the desk that you're working on. Put the rest to one side and get them out one job at a time. It's not rocket science, you know. It's, it's in some senses, common sense with data behind it. Well, just looking at my desk, it's not exactly Zen with that one sheet wonder idea, but definitely when I've cleaned everything up and, you know, I've got everything organized, I definitely feel more calm and focused. So it's a great tip for us to remember. As Vin was explaining that insight, I was imagining sort of watering plant pots in the garden with the watering can being swung left to right. And as I move from pot to pot, some of the water spilling out onto the floor and getting wasted. It's the same with our mental energy. When we see those email alerts popping up in the corner of our laptop as we work on that important document, our inquisitive brain says, oh, an email from Susan in finance. I wonder what she wants. And we start to think through the various options. And then we have to try and get ourselves back into that report. And our brain is left elsewhere and trying to pick up those pieces. And similarly, the doom scrolling on our social media reels. Yes, they're short, engaging and designed to be addictive, but they're also exhausting. For every five second frame, we're looking at the posts, looking at the images, reading the captions, watching the video, and then trying to pick out the nuances to reflect back on what their previous posts and messages were, or comparing it to ourselves. And all of this takes mental energy and switching all the time between these different tasks can leave us feeling depleted if we're not careful. Our ability to focus our attention is a key mental skill that's so useful across any domain in our life. And I was really interested to hear Vin's thoughts on how that changes and gets compromised under extreme pressure. Yeah, the, the ways of, of, of dealing with, with stress um, are or the perception of stress, let, let's say, and the effects of the perception of stress on, on performance, are really, again, back to thinking about how we learn and also how the brain selects Im information. So um, you're looking at, at me now, but there are, there are lots of other things, not a lot in this case, but other things in the, in the environment. And actually, my guess is that I could put a gun to your head and you wouldn't be able to tell me anything that's written on any of those books behind me. Um, because you haven't been concentrating uh, on them. But they, they've been there, they've been on your, your, your retina and they've been getting into your, your brain. So, because this is a relaxed situation, you find it easy to concentrate on what you're supposed to be concentrating on. But at different levels of, of, of stress and also different levels, let, let's say what, one of the things that causes the, those stresses is different levels of, of reward. Um, you find it less easy to ignore the, the irrelevant. And actually, the irrelevant can even become important. We call it increased saliency uh, in the brain. But what we do know is that you can choose to minimize the saliency of anything in the environment. So you could, for example, uh, if let's imagine that 
what I was saying to you was the most important thing you'd ever heard in your life, but these books kept throbbing their titles at you and you wanted to, to ignore them. Uh, a good strategy would be to say, okay, I'm just going to imagine Vince in colour and everything else around him is, is black and white. I would become more salient to you. You'd find it easier to concentrate. Or I'm going to imagine those books shrinking and then again, I would be the same size and I would be uh, more in the centre of your uh, your concentration. So it's, a, it's a, a, a question of finding a balance between what you want to concentrate on and what what's intruding from the rest of the world. And we're very good at it automatically most of the time. Um, I live in central London, which means I ignore loud traffic noise all the time. I, I ignore big drills and, and building machinery all the time because I'm automatically uh, able to, to do that. But when we're put in high stress situations, either a board meeting or thousands of people suddenly watching us do something that we do every day, then these usually irrelevant things are much more salient and we have to find strategies of, of minimising them. So our brain's at its best when it's focused on one thing, when it's mindful. That's what mindfulness is all about. So our ability to turn down the distractions and focus on what's right in front of us in that moment in time. And when we get under pressure, a high threat environment or a high pressure moment live on television or whatever it might be as a sports star, then our brain starts to look for the threats. It starts to get busy and, and jump around thinking about people's expectations of us and what they think about us. So that's what sports psychology is all about, trying to give people this simple routine and set of cues and habits to go back to, which ultimately dial down the volume of those external distractions and let them focus on the swing thoughts, the rhythm of their golf shot, uh, you know, how they want their shot to feel, the strategy that they want to execute. And they move away from what the scoreboard is, what the prize money is, you know, what their mate's going to say if they miss, what happens if they go into the water. All of those things uh, are down the line. We need to focus on what's in front of us right now and dial up that volume and stay calm and focused on what's going to give us the best outcome possible in those next few seconds. And that's a real skill to be able to train that. So we've talked a little bit about these pre-shot routines and staying in the moment in previous episodes, but let's dig into this daily energy game plan in a little bit more detail. I was keen to hear some of the tips on how to build a really productive day, but to make his point, Vin gives us the worst case scenario to jolt our awareness. So let's, let's think about the ideal day, but in doing so, let's think about the complete disaster of a day. So here's what you wouldn't do. Uh, you wouldn't get up in the morning and eat all the food that you're going to eat for the day at that breakfast. And that's it. You just put all your food into, into one, one meal. And then you put all the jobs that you've got to do for that day uh, out on your, your, your desk so that you're, you're swamped with, with the information. And later on at, at night, you put all your sleep because you, you, you need to recover. You put all your sleep into one box at the end of the day. So we have these this crazy situation in which we, we lump everything all, uh, all in discrete units. We don't do that with some of our things. We do it with sleep. We already don't do it with, with food. But even when we think about a relatively well-organized day, there are things that we don't think about that we should think about. 
So there are these things called chronotypes. Uh, uh, sorry, it's a technical term. It just means when you're most awake or when you're most likely to sleep. And we do different, uh, differ in these, in these types. We all know or we all have a feeling for whether we're um, um, night owls or, 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 or morning people or whether we peak in, in the afternoon. But how many of us ever give a second's thought to doing the most important things at the time when we are going to be at our psychological processing peak? My guess is almost none of us. Um, and again, it's not that difficult to do. Um, we organise going to the gym for, let's say, six o'clock in the evening because that fits in with the commute. Um, we organise dinner for eight o'clock in the evening because that fits in with uh, something on, on the TV, maybe. So what's the big difficulty in organising that very difficult letter that you've got to write to somebody or that very difficult phone call that you've got to make uh, to somebody? What's the big deal for organising that for 11 o'clock in the morning if that's when your peak time is? And there are ways of finding out what your peak time of day is. The advantage, of course, is if it's the peak time for you, it might not be the peak time for the person who you're dealing with. You're already onto a possible advantage. How funny is it that we arrange our meals around certain TV shows, but we don't arrange our diary around our biggest psychological challenges and put them at a time when we have the biggest energy and resource to deal with them. If anything, we often push those big challenges, those important spreadsheets, conversations or reports back to the end of the day. We delay it and procrastinate because we don't want to get them wrong. Or even worse, we push them back to the end of the week when we've got no energy at all. And then we've got that guilt frazzling away all of our energy up to the time when we actually commit to those things because we know we're delaying it and we keep picking it up in our mind and thinking, oh, I must do that. You start to imagine it and then you go, oh, I can't do it yet. And you put it down. So actually, it's a lose-lose situation from a cognitive energy point of view. So the game plan is to clear the desk, focus on one thing at a time and maybe batch similar styles of work in the same block of time to avoid this waste of energy that task switching brings. And then we need some kind of buzzer or alarm. Maybe it's this Pomodoro technique where we have a, a, you know, a timer every 50 minutes that then gives us 50 minutes of focused work. And we know we've got a 10 minute break where we take a quick walk, grab a drink and, and have some time to switch off. And we also switch off those annoying bells and whistles and pop ups and notifications on our phones and laptops that really take us away from those in-depth 50 minutes that we need to preserve that deep focus time as much as we possibly can. And if we have three of those hours in a day, that's probably brilliant compared to the constantly distracted in and out blur of distraction that we have in most of our days. So we need to do our hardest task earlier in the day when we've got most energy. And then we get that added bonus of the pride knowing that we've done it. And then that gives us even more smug energy to know that we can tackle something else in the day and make it a truly special one. We're already one nil up on the day when we've tackled that thing that we've been putting off. I can definitely really relate to this myself, you know, doing my best work in bursts, probably between 10.30 and one o'clock in the morning is when I'm most productive and make the biggest impact. And then I'll probably have a second wind late afternoon or, or into the evening when perhaps I've done all the taxi rides for the kids and the house is quieter 
and I know everything's done so I can really focus on those hours of impact. So, you know, it's really interesting to think for you, what, what are those peak hours of impact? Maybe one idea is to keep a notepad by your workstation or wherever you are and just make a note of the times when you seem to be getting into the zone and actually focusing at that particular point. And then other times when you're sinking and flagging and you're not quite getting through so much of the work because it may be that that's your natural daily rhythms that you need to tune into and actually you can start to schedule some of your work more proactively into those high energy blocks. And I think this awareness and this experience that you've got of these periods of intense productivity are going to be really important but then equally when you've got lower productivity periods you might be doing things like um, you know doing some of your emails or doing some exercise or doing something to keep your brain fresh and energized. I wanted to understand some more about how we had these sparks of creativity during our day and Vin's point was really illuminating. There are two key elements to, to creativity. Uh, one of them everybody likes and one of them uh, not many people like. The one that not many people like is creativity is founded on hard work. There's n nothing behind any real creativity other than, um, than years of, of sweat and, and effort. The other side of creativity, which people, it's odd. There's a group of people who overemphasize this, this next part of creativity, which is the eureka moment. It's having the idea. And that always comes, always comes when you're not thinking about the problem. It always comes when you're either uh, relaxing or you're, you're, you're just taking time out for a, a, to make a cup of coffee um, or sometimes even when you're taking a, a, a nap. This is when people get their, their great ideas. It's called offline processing. The brain desperately needs that um, to, in order to make new connections between all the information that you've been putting into it. Um, this is why it's often not the workaholic who creates you know, the, the, the most work. It might be the person who does take a, a month's holiday in August. Uh, but what they're doing during that month's holiday, one of the things that they're doing during that holiday, is to allow their brain to make uh, new connections and associations between all the things that they've been sweating over for the rest of the year. And it's a downtime is really, really underestimated. We have to have the courage for people to have downtime. So, go and ask your boss for all of August off and blame it on me. Well, actually, no, better still, blame it on Vin's offline processing. But it does make sense, and I've definitely been running through the country lanes, and then an idea has come into my mind, and I've almost had to stop and make a note of it on my phone so that I don't forget it. But I think we all sometimes feel that guilt of stepping away from our computers and feeling like that's not really work. But actually, if we are knowledge workers, or it's our job to come up with creative problems to be solved, uh, and ideas, then we can have this deep level of expertise and we understand our industry. But then we sometimes need this fresh air, fresh space, downtime, and this capacity for two ideas that might have been rumbling around somewhere in our brain to fire and wire together 
into this spark of creativity. So I think this new era of work where we might be working hybrid gives us this opportunity to build in this downtime for offline processing as well as the intense focused work that we're going to do based around our daily energy rhythms. But our brain is truly fascinating and I really hope you've enjoyed this session with Professor Vin Walsh. I love learning about how our brain works, but also about how we can take on this role of lead architect in shaping our own future. Simply put, even into the second half of our lives, we're still able to shape and sculpt our brain to make it even more efficient. It's really powerful to think about it. So just as the London cab drivers' brains have changed them, learning the knowledge which they have to know to navigate all the streets, we can take on our own projects that are going to develop our brains in a positive way and our bodies as well. So I hope you've enjoyed the insights from Vin. Remember, all of his insights are in our digital library and you can join our members club and access all the hundreds of thought leaders that we've interviewed in the science of high performance using the discount code podcast100 at the checkout of our members platform at sportingedge.com. So please do follow me on LinkedIn for more insights. And if you need any support for your business, then make sure you email me through to hello at sportingedge.com. So until next time, good luck and look after that wonderful brain. Thanks for listening to this episode of Inside the Mind of Champions. Connect with Jeremy's LinkedIn, Twitter and Instagram links in today's show notes to receive the latest insights from his work. If you'd like to get access to Sporting Edge's digital library or book Jeremy for a conference speech or webinar, then please visit www.sportingedge.com or email hello at sportingedge.com.